Today's reading will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 to 40. If you're reading from the Blue Pew Bible, you can find today's reading on page 956. Yeah, today's reading will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 to 40. And if you're reading from the Blue Pew Bible, you can find today's reading on page 956. Uh, please rise for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 to 40. Now concerning the betrothed, I have, no, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the, the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties, the unmarried man is anxious about things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. We now pray for your Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of it, that we might receive your truth and receive it by faith, receive it with joy, and receive it in obedience. We pray all of this for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you haven't been with us uh, in the past few weeks, or if you're just returning, uh, you should know we are in a series in our English service going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And in the past weeks, we have been in chapter 7. And chapter 7 covers a range of related issues, things like sex, marriage, divorce, finding contentment in whatever stage of life you're in, 
And so if you think about it, anyone who questions the modern day relevancy of an ancient book like the Bible really just needs to spend more time in 1 Corinthians 7. It's so applicable for us in our day. And that's especially true of today's passage. Because today's passage is all about singleness, which is extremely relevant for many in today's society. Because today, there are more unmarried adults in the U.S. than at any other time in, in our nation's history. In a Pew survey that was conducted last year, 49% of respondents indicated that they were unmarried. Now, actually, that comes at no surprise that almost half of the people in our nation, of adults in our nation are unmarried, because things have been trending that way for decades. And very soon, we're told that the number of unmarried adults in America will outnumber the married. And what's even more significant is the percentage of unmarried adults who indicated in this survey that they are not living with a partner, nor are they in a committed relationship. They are single. And the single comprise 30% of U.S. adults. That means three in ten people that you're going to meet on the streets are defined as single. And get this, 57% of these single adults They are not currently looking for a committed relationship or even going on casual dates. So that means roughly six in 10 single adults that you're gonna meet are not actively seeking a relationship, let alone a marriage partner. They seem to be content living what is called the single life. Now, Having just listened to Paul's words being read from this morning's text, you would think that he would welcome that figure, that nearly 60% of the people out there in our country want to live the single life. I mean, didn't he say himself back in verse 8 that it's good for the unmarried to remain single as he is? And in today's text, as just read, didn't he say that those who are free from a wife should not seek one? And, quote, he who refrains from marriage will do even better than the one who marries. So you'd think that Paul would applaud this societal trend, walking away from marriage. But that's actually not the case. I, I think Paul would actually consider this to be tragic for a couple of reasons. Because first, it's not like the 57% who aren't looking for a committed relationship are actually committed to living a life of faithful celibacy, which is what Paul is actually advocating. When he says that it is good to remain single as he is, what he means is to remain single and celibate, refraining from not just marriage, but refraining from any romantic or sexual relationship. And that's obviously not characteristic of the lives of most unmarried adults in our nation today. The vast majority are very interested in sex and romance, just not in commitment. So the kind of secular singleness prevalent today is different in kind to the scriptural singleness that's being advocated by Paul. And these two kinds of singleness, these two visions of singleness, are also driven by two different visions for life. Secular singleness, for example, 
is driven by usually a fear of commitment or, or a self-serving desire for independence. But scriptural singleness, as described in today's passage, is predicated on a very different vision for life, one that is bigger and longer and far more selfless. And friends, my goal this morning is to help you to see and to understand that difference, and especially to help those of you in this season of life, this season of singleness, I want to help you to maximize your singleness for the glory of God. Now, in order to get there, I'll need to prove that Paul really is advocating for singleness. I know that sounds strange to many of you because it sounds contrary to what you've always heard in church. You've probably heard about the importance of dating with intentionality, you know, with dating with marriage in mind. And we tend to treat, in the church, we tend to treat getting married as, you know, just the norm and the expectation for all young people in the church. And so when we read a passage like this, we get confused. And ironically, Paul wrote this very passage, as he says in verse 32, to free us from anxiety, and yet his words have now become a source of anxiety for many people as they hear it read. Because those who are married, those who are engaged, or those who just strongly desire to get married one day are left feeling bad that they apparently can't seem to live up to this biblical ideal that Paul is laying out for us. So I think what we need right now is some clarification as to what Paul is actually teaching. And so what I'd like to do is to offer for you this morning four clarifications to Paul's support of this idea for single people to remain single. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline. These are four clarifications to this, this general teaching that he's saying here about staying single. So here's our first clarification. The first thing to be, to be said is that remaining single is good pastoral advice, but note that it is not a general fixed rule. So please don't read Paul's words here as something fixed, as, as, as something that, that everyone must do. Read it instead as pastoral advice driven by pastoral concern. Paul does prefer the celibate single life. And he, and he does, in this passage, wish it for others, but he goes to great lengths to not absolutize his own preference. In fact, we've noted already in our study of chapter 7 that, that some in the Corinthian church were trying to do just that. They were trying to absolutize celibacy as the truly spiritual path that if you really want to be close to God, you should pursue celibacy to the point that even married couples were refusing their conjugal rights and they were even, some of them, considering divorce in order to more easily avoid their marriage bed. And apparently, Betrothed couples, engaged couples, were wondering if they should call it off, to call off the engagement. Now, it's going to surprise many of us to hear Paul say that he basically agrees that these unmarried believers should reconsider marriage. But it's important to see that his rationale is completely different compared 
to that of the Corinthians who were advocating for celibacy. So, now, let's consider some context here. Remember last week, we consider the theological principle that undergirds this, his entire teaching here in this chapter. The principle is really well summed up for us uh, if you look in chapter 7, verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 20 is a good summary of, of the undergirding principle. He says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So the principle here, in other words, is that in whatever life situation you were in when you became a Christian, if you can remain in that position and still be faithful in your discipleship to Christ from now on, then stay there. You don't need to make a change. And Paul reiterates this principle in verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So if you were married when you became a Christian, then stay married. If you were single, then stay single. Now look at what he says in verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. You see, that's what he's teaching. Now, it was stressed, though, last week that this too, this principle that he's laying out, this as well is not an absolute principle. He is not saying a person who is converted to Christ while single is now locked in that station of life for life. Just look at what he says next in verse 28. He says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. You're not violating some kind of general rule. You're not violating a law of God. There's no general fixed rule saying that Christian singles must remain single. I mean, even the way that Paul began verse 25 suggests that he's not giving us a general fixed rule. Listen to verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. And by that, he means that he's not aware of any teaching from the Lord Jesus on this subject. So there is, Jesus never commanded anything about this particular situation. But he goes on to say, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So you can trust Paul's judgment, but he is not giving a command. He's not giving a fixed rule. He is carefully considering the unique circumstances in Corinth, and based on that, he's offering pastoral advice driven by pastoral concern. And this is very clear when you consider verse 26 again. Look at 26. And notice how his advice about remaining as you are is offered in view of the present distress. Okay, so apparently there's something going on in their context that leads Paul to offer this advice. And this something going on, unfortunately for us, goes unnamed. He doesn't tell us exactly what it is, but it must be some sort of crisis. Now, some think that it's probably referring to just ongoing persecution that the church was facing, or some would suggest there was a famine happening that created economic distress in their region. We don't know exactly, but either way, it's because Paul is sensitive to what's going on in their lives that he is now compelled to recommend to them the single life. All of this, I hope you see, is coming from a pastoral heart. And we see that in verse 28. Look at 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. 
So, you know, Paul is being realistic here. He knows that not everyone will or can take his advice. And so he makes it clear that it's not a sin to go against this advice. But then, of course, he quickly qualifies his qualifier by returning to his original sentiment. Quote, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. Now, I know at first glance, that sounds like what many singles would say today, that why they want to keep living the single life is because they want to spare themselves of trouble. You know, that, that, that form of secular singleness we mentioned earlier would swear off marriage because it, marriage is like this, this seems like this constraint. It's this ball and chain. It's just going to, you know, constrain your freedom. It's going to limit your independence. Marriage just brings all this trouble. That's why I don't want to get married. But that's not where Paul is coming from. Whatever worldly trouble he has in mind is trouble specifically triggered by whatever that present distress is. So we wish he would give us more context and tell us what it is, but we just don't know what exactly was happening. But what matters in the end is that Paul the pastor loves his sheep, and he wants to spare the single members in his flock from anguish. That's why he advises them to stay single. Not because it's more virtuous, not because it draws you closer to God, but because he wants to spare them the pain and the heartache that will be amplified by marriage, by, uh, amplified in marriage by the present distress that they're all facing. So for example, I wouldn't be surprised if there are pastors and parents right now in the Ukraine advising their young people to remain single in view of their present distress. In the face of war, you're in the context of being invaded by another country. This is where death and bereavement are ever-present troubles in your circumstances. I can totally imagine Christian singles being advised to remain as they are. I would I totally understand the pastoral wisdom that would discourage any impulsive rush to marriage in such unstable times. Or let's bring it down to something more personal, something more relevant to our situation. For example, if one or both partners in a relationship have a, a crushing level of debt, whether from school debt, consumer debt, or if their job situations at best are unstable, then pastorally sensitive advice for them could be, it could be to remain single and to not get married, at least to not get married right now. In view of their present distress, their present financial distress, a marriage will certainly amplify their troubles and, and you would want to spare them of that. Now, of course, that's not a general rule that every couple has to follow, but it could be some very good pastoral advice. Do you see what's happening here in Paul's pastoral, loving relationship with his sheep? That's what's being conveyed. So that's what our passage is saying here. Remaining single is not a general fixed rule, just pastorally sensitive advice. But now, friends, there's another clarification that we should make. Remaining single is a better option when examined with eternity in view. Listen to verse 29. 
Paul just said he wants to spare those considering marriage from worldly troubles, and he goes on to explain exactly what he means. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. So besides factoring in the pressures of their present distress, Paul is now taking into account that the appointed time has grown very short. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? Well, it's clear. It's clear that he has the end of the world, the end of the world in its present form in mind. That's what he says in verse 31. Verse 31, he says, for the present form of this world is passing away. Now, some think that Paul was convinced that Christ's return and the end of the world was not just imminent, but immediate, meaning that that he believed that the end of all things were, was going to happen within their lifetime. And so, essentially, that would mean he's saying, hey, look, if everything can just end tomorrow, you should just stay single. Like, spare yourself of the trouble, not just of the trouble of being married, but even just the whole wedding and everything. Like, why go through all that if, if the end is, is about to happen? But this reading fails to consider the significance of the particular word that Paul uses for time. You see, friends, there are two Greek words that mean time, chronos and kairos, and they imply different things. So chronos refers to seconds, minutes, you know, the, the measurement and the duration of time. That's where we get the word chronology, right? But kairos is used to describe a decisive moment in time an epoch, an, a, a particular age in history. Now, if Paul here in verse 29 is saying that the chronos has grown very short, then yes, then that would mean his point is that the end of the world is about to happen, so just spare yourself the trouble of getting married. But Paul uses the word kairos, which is why the ESV translates it as the appointed time. That's that, that word appointed is added there by the translators to help you understand the particular word being used here. And when you consider how kairos is used in Paul's other letters, the appointed time that Paul is referring to is this present age that we are living in between Jesus's first and second coming. You see, he does have the end of the world in mind, but you have to understand that Paul's eschatology was shaped by his Christology. And what that simply means is that his view of the end times was shaped by his view of the Christ event. That means the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ in Paul's understanding was momentous in human history. It marked the end of one age and the start of another. And so now from a New Testament perspective, we are rightly understood to be living in the last days. This present age we're in is, according to Paul, the last days. Now, that means Paul believed the end times have essentially broken into our present time. 
And so what he's doing here is he's not counting down the days and focus on how much time we have left. His focus, rather, is on how Jesus has completely transformed all the time we have, regardless if it's going to be long or short. And so just because now, of course, with this, in hindsight, now we know, of course, Jesus never returned in the lifetime of Paul or the Corinthians. That doesn't mean that we can just ignore his advice here in this passage as if it was just built on some faulty premise. No, it was never based on the assumption that the end was soon coming. It was based on the understanding that for those who have eyes of faith, the future has already been foreshortened meaning that we can now see the future. We can see the end of all things now with greater clarity and greater urgency. I mean, have you ever stood on top of a, of a mountaintop and just noticed how the peaks of all the other mountains out there that, that surround you, are, they just appear much closer from that particular vantage point, closer than you know they really are? Well, I think it's like Paul here is taking us up to the mountaintop and he's helping us to, to look towards the future, to look towards the end of the ages now from this new vantage point. And now, with eternity in view, we are now in a better position to reevaluate our values, to reevaluate our priorities, to reevaluate which is what's, what's the most important thing in life. That kind of vantage point can radically alter what you believe really matters in the here and now. So look at verse 29. Paul says, okay, now from this vantage point, from now on, and he gives four examples of how this new perspective can change your life from now on. First, he says it'll change the way you see marriage. Verse 29, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, we know because of what we studied in the very first part of this chapter, that doesn't mean you go on and neglect your wife or you neglect your husband or all of your marital duties. It just means that marriage is not everything because it's not eternal. Your marital union ends at death or if Christ returns before that. I mean, when you said, till death do us part, you do realize you are vowing to part, right? Just not until death. You don't do it in this lifetime, but you will part one day. That's what you're actually promising to each other on your wedding day. We're going to part, just not now. It's not in this life. Couples must not forget that. Married couples must not forget that their marriage it's not an end-all, be-all, but their marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. So as a picture, marriage is temporary by nature. Eventually, you set it aside. Just as a picture of a long-lost love that a lover has been cherishing for so many years can now be put aside when lovers are finally reunited with each other face to face. If you're, you're staring at the face of your long lost love, there's no reason to still pull out a picture and stare at it. You have your lover before you. And that is what it's gonna be like when we're finally with Christ at his second coming. 
And that's the part that marriage is going to play until then. It's going to be like that picture letting us know, reminding us of our future reunion with Christ Jesus, the groom, and we as the church of the bride. Second, a clear view of eternity changes how you mourn and how you rejoice. Keep reading in verse 30. Paul says, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. He's, now, of course, he's not literally saying you should never cry. Hey, stop crying. He's not saying you should never rejoice or be happy. Paul's point is that Christians should never forget that our tears and our laughters are never the last word. The sadness of singleness or that of a difficult marriage is never the final word. And neither is the joy and happiness of the single or the married life. There is, for us all, a greater wedding to be experienced, where every tear will be replaced with perfect joy. For those who are in Christ, we have something even greater to look forward to, whether to comfort our sadness or to amplify even more our joy that we thought could not be even greater than what we're experiencing now. Third, a clear view of eternity changes the way you view your stuff and the, the accumulation of more stuff. Look at the end of verse 30. And those who buy as though they had no goods. Now Paul's not pushing for a complete withdrawal from ordinary life, and he's just like, you know, go off into the woods and live as, as some kind of hermit. He's not, saying, he, he's not saying that. He's just simply saying, don't be consumed by your consumption. If I truly believe that the present form of this world is passing away, that would then therefore include you know, my house, my car, all my digital devices, all my, book, my books. I mean, they're going to go away. I, I really shouldn't be devastated to lose them. And that therefore means if I lose them right now before the end comes, I tell myself I, I never really owned them in the first place. That's what Paul's saying. And fourth, a clear view of eternity changes how you deal with the world. Look at verse 31. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Again, Paul's not recommending that you just close yourself off from any meaningful interaction with people in the world. No, we we are to be in the world, just not of the world. So we get married or we stay single. Or we find this job or we change and we get another one. We just make dealings with this world. We deal with everyday worldly decisions We're going to engage this world, but as Christians, Paul's point is that we should not get wrapped up in it because we know the present form of this world is passing away because we as Christians should have eternity in view. And with that perspective, we know that being single and staying single is not the end of the world. And we know that finding Mr. or Mrs. Right and falling in love is not the end-all, be-all. It's from that perspective, with eternity in view, Paul could say in this passage that remaining single is better. Now, church, there's a third clarification to make. Remaining single is helpful to help you serve the Lord without distraction. Paul is trying to help Christians to find whichever course of life enables them to serve God the best. 
And again, this is coming from a pastoral heart, just looking out for what's best for individual believers. So start reading again with me in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the married or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now, in this section right here, verses 32 to 34, Paul's reason for recommending singleness has little to do with the end times, like like the previous verses. Here, it has more to do with encouraging a single-minded devotion to the Lord. He starts in verse 32 by saying, of course, that he wants to free us from anxieties. And that word anxious there means to be divided, to, to, to be fragmented. And so he goes on to say that the married man or, or the married woman is anxious or divided and fragmented about many worldly things. His interests are divided. You see that in verse 34. So in other words, a Christian husband is fragmented, divided between pleasing his wife and pleasing the Lord. Now, let's be very careful here. Paul is not saying that pleasing your spouse or merely wanting to please your spouse is inherently some kind of troublesome burden. He, again, is not portraying marriage as this ball and chain that is now, you know, forcing you to have to do these, 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 uh, these worldly things like having to take care of your spouse. No, you know, that, that's not what he's saying. It's not like you should be thinking, oh, you know, now I, now I got to think about you. I got to think about your interests as if that were a bad thing. What Paul is doing here is that he's acknowledging that marriage does come with responsibilities. Responsibilities that you can't ignore. And practically speaking, you only have so much time in the day to directly devote that time to serving the Lord. So for married people, our interests are divided between God and family. And rightly so. I hope you hear this. It is pleasing to the Lord for you married people to be serving your family. But single people, single people like Paul can give, like Paul, undivided attention to serving the Lord without having to worry about family and for providing for their needs. That's his point. He goes on in verse 35 to explain that he's giving this advice for the good of singles in the church. Look at verse 35. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, that word for for restraint, he says, I don't want to put any restraint on you. That word for restraint is literally a leash or or a lasso that you would put on a horse's neck to lead that horse around. So you see here, Paul cares greatly for unmarried believers. And he's saying, I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not trying to force you or to put a leash on you, forcing you to remain single, restraining your freedom in that way. He has no intent to to leash you and to restrain your freedom to marry if you so choose to marry. His intent here 
is to help single people discern what course of life will best enable them to serve the Lord without distraction. Remember how we saw in the beginning of chapter seven how singleness there was described as this spiritual gift. Just like the, using the exact same word he's gonna use later in chapter 12 when he talks about the spiritual gifts that we're more familiar with, he calls singleness a spiritual gift that is given to some people within the church. Well, if all of this advice that you're reading about right now, if this advice to remain single feels to you like a leash, a, a, a lasso put around your neck, if it feels too constricting, if it's causing you greater anxiety, well then, hey friend, that's a pretty good indicator, a pretty good sign that you probably don't have the spiritual gift of singleness. For you, it would be most beneficial to pursue marriage. But for some here, for some here, I'm not surprised if Paul's advice is actually resonating with you. You see the wisdom in it. it. It doesn't feel for you like this constricting leash. In fact, it's actually inspiring you. It's giving you a new vision for life. Then perhaps if that's you, then, then maybe you do have this spiritual gift of singleness. And if you do, then receive it with joy and take advantage of the undivided, undistracted attention that you can give now to the things of the Lord. Don't despise your gift. Use it joyfully for the glory of God and for the upbuilding of his church. Now, friends, our final clarification is this. Remaining single is practically advantageous, but not morally superior. And that's really a summary of verses 36 to 40. Here Paul addresses betrothed couples, engaged couples. In verse 36, he, he imagines a man who might be thinking that he's not, quote, behaving properly towards his fiancée. Now, there's no need to read into that anything immoral. That phrase could simply mean acting against social custom. And so what this means is that this man might be concluding that if I were to end this betrothal, if I were to end this engagement, that would be socially improper. I, I don't feel comfortable with that. And if he thinks that way, and at the same time, Paul says, if his passions are strong, that is, he really does wish to get married, and he, and he does have a, a, a desire for the marriage bed, then Paul is realistic with his advice. They should get married. Go for it. It is no sin, he specifically says. And he goes on later in verse 39, specifically here, speaking to widows who are now in a position to reconsider marriage, remarriage. He says there that you are free to marry whosoever you wish. There's so much freedom here to marry who you wish, so long as it's in the Lord, he does say. So he, he does qualify that by saying, Make sure you marry another Christian. That's the only requirement. But there is so much freedom. But now look. Look at verse 37. In verse 37, Paul explains that if there is a man in the church who is engaged and yet now wants to end his engagement, and this, of course, could even go the other way as well, a, a, a woman wanting to end the betrothed, then there needs to be three things in place. First, he has to be convinced in his own heart. Not just because this is what some other people are telling him to do. 
He needs to be firmly established that this is God's calling for him and his betrothed. Second, he needs to be under no necessity and to have his desires under control. That is, he needs to have no controlling need for sex. And, and he kind of, Paul explains why that was so important earlier in chapter 7. And third, this man needs to, be det- needs to determine this for himself, in his heart. And if he chooses singleness, Paul says, he will do well. And then read his summary in verse 38. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage, who stays single, will do even better. For the one who chooses to marry, and for the one who chooses not to marry, they both do well, but Paul's not going to hold back from saying that he thinks the one who refrains from marriage will do even better. But again, friends, the whole point is that by better, Paul is not saying the celibate single life is morally superior than getting married. For Paul, the advantages of the single life are purely practical. Both do well, both please the Lord, but like we said, the single person has practical advantages over the married person when it comes to giving single-minded devotion to the Lord at the service in the church or around the world. Now, I know not everyone can receive this advice to stay single. Only to those to whom this gift is given. So let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. May your single life be a testimony to the supreme sufficiency of Christ, demonstrating to all of us that the abundant life that Jesus came to bring does not require marriage. We need Christian singles to proclaim that truth with their very lives. May your singleness preach that Christ is all and that in him we have our all in all. That's a vision for you in your singleness. Now, I, I'm realistic enough to know that the vast majority of you here who are unmarried, I, 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 I understand that you don't want that status for life, that you do want to get married. Well, even if you don't think you have the spiritual gift of singleness, well, I think you can still treat your present-day singleness as a gift and give it to God and give it to his church for as long as you have this gift. The Lord does mean for some singles in the church to remain single for a lifetime, but for others, it's only going to be for a season. And so if you're in that season of singleness right now, then just ask yourself, how can my singleness right now, it may not be forever, but how can it be right now, how can it be leveraged for the kingdom of God? In what ways can I consecrate my singleness and give it to the Lord as a gift, to give it to his church as a gift. Perhaps that would be by intentionally devoting yourself to discipling other people, to getting deeper and more involved in people's lives than you, than you might have the time to do if you had a family to raise. Perhaps it means in this season of life, formally serving in our church, in our various ministries, 
you know, working with our college students, our, our youth, our children, our nursery. Perhaps you can do this in this stage of life, this season of life, better than you can if you were to one day marry. So how can, how can you then even think about, maybe, maybe, maybe God wants me to, to use my single season of life and to be sent from this place, because I, 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 you might be more mobile than if you had a family, and maybe you could be sent even around the globe on short-term missions, maybe even long-term missions. These are all things to be thinking about, is that even if this is just a season, how can it be leveraged for the Lord? How can your singleness be stewarded for Jesus and for his great name? Give yourself to that. That's pastoral advice for you. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this text, speaking so relevantly to the things in our lives, the circumstances of our lives. And Lord, I know you have a word for all of us, whether some of us are married. May we see now even our marriage from an eternal perspective. And for those of us who here are unmarried, for those of us who are single, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see a new vision of how we could steward our singleness as a good gift for you, for your church, for your mission around this world. Lord, be glorified in our lives in whatever station of life we are in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.